In early February last year, journalist A.C. Thompson was asleep with his wife and eight-year-old son in their home in Northern California. I remember my wife, Lori, like, I remember waking up and um, she was frantic and it had been raining. It had been raining a lot. It was the winter. And I thought she was saying, we're flooding because I've been hearing all this rain beating on the roof of the house. But no, what she said was, we're being swatted and you have to go outside now. AC's wife knew this because she had just gotten a call. A voice on the other end said, this is the SWAT team. We're outside your house. You need to come out now. So I walked outside in my pajamas and there was a bunch of SWAT team cops in full tactical gear with AR-15 type rifles with lights and scopes trained on me. The SWAT team officers marched AC down to the end of the block, his hands in the air. They searched him, cuffed him, and put him in the back of a police cruiser. They did the same with his wife and put her in a different cruiser. And what they were telling me was, hey, we've gotten a call that the man who lives here has killed his whole family and killed his wife, and that's why we're here, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. I said, I report on neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and this is one of the tactics that they use to terrorize people and, and scare them and possibly get them killed by SWAT teams. And this is a hoax that's meant to waste your time and intimidate me. The officers told AC they were going into the house to check everything out. I said, look, my eight-year-old is in there, and he's also a very, very good boxer and trained in jujitsu. So if he comes at you and tries to attack you because he doesn't know who you are, please don't kill him because he may freak out. And I said, my mom is in there. She's an elderly lady, so please don't give her a heart attack. I said, everything is okay. Please don't kill my family. Eventually, you know, they figured out like, oh, yeah, no one's dead here. There's no blood. There's no weapons. Everything is okay. This summer, a 26-year-old man in Texas pleaded guilty to conspiring to swat AC and several other targets, including AC's employer, ProPublica, a university in Virginia, a black church, and the former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen. The man was the leader of a terrorist group called Atomwaffen Division. If you want to look at a group that is likely to go out and engage in a mass killing, yeah, that's Atomwaffen. That's Atomwaffen. In the constellation of groups that make up the white supremacist movement, the most disturbing one is Atomwaffen. Christian Picciolini calls them the Nazis that other Nazis are scared of. A group like Adam Waffen would be considered an accelerationist group. And let me explain what that means. Accelerationists believe that there is a downfall of society coming, but that they need to kind of foster it, pour gasoline on it, and encourage it to happen so it happens faster. They are planning for the 
direct overthrow of the United States government through terrorism. Adam Waffen's dystopian vision was once on the very fringe of the movement. But in recent months, their strategy of violence and chaos has found currency with many more Americans. And it's no longer an idea whispered in the shadows. More and more, you can hear it on our streets and in our politics. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. Tipping Point. Adam Waffen has been compared to ISIS, the Islamist terrorist network. The group, whose name is the German word for atomic weapons, was established in 2015. Adam Waffen wasn't just concerning because it advocated the toppling of government and breakdown of society. It was also concerning because some of its members were enlisted in the U.S. military, like Brennan. So my job specifically was air defense. I worked on Patriot missile launching stations. I was an operator, so a level 10 operator. Brennan says he's left the white supremacist movement. He shared his story on condition that we use only his first name. And I'll note, his first name is a lot like the guy you heard in the last episode, Brendan. But this one is Brennan without the D. Brennan's trip into the far right began in 2016. He had recently finished training in Oklahoma and had moved to work on a military base in central Texas. Nationally, the presidential election was heating up. Brennan liked Donald Trump's idea of a border wall. I, I, I really believed at that time that America needed to be an ethnostate. And, you know, of course, the alt-right believes that white people are uh, intentionally being replaced, I guess, around the world, especially in America. And so one of the things that you support is the wall because it's going to stop the influx of immigrants to replace white people. Brennan joined a group called American Vanguard. But as he spent more time online chatting with other white supremacists, his views became more extreme. I didn't believe people had the capability uh, to rule themselves and to govern themselves and to vote properly. And that what needed to be done was the government needed to be toppled. The idea of America needed to be burned from the top down in order for things to work. It just needed to be destroyed. The whole thing needed to be destroyed in order to employ fascism. Brennan left American Vanguard to join Adam Waffen. They were happy to have him. He was military, with valuable training and survival skills. Since it began, Adam Waffen had targeted the armed services for recruitment or encouraged its members to enlist. So tell me about the cell that you were assigned to. Yeah, I was, I was assigned to the Texas cell. Um, it, it started growing as time went on, but it was no more than 10 people. Shortly after Brendan joined, Adam Waffen landed on the radar of law enforcement. A former member of the group murdered two roommates in a dispute over his religion. When police interrogated him, he said that members of the group were planning to blow up power lines and government buildings. Police also found an explosive device and explosive materials belonging to a fourth surviving roommate, Brandon Russell, the founder of Adam Waffen. 
Russell was ultimately arrested by local authorities. A.C. Thompson's investigation for ProPublica and Frontline has perhaps revealed the most information about Russell's intentions. When he was arrested, Russell was on the road, hundreds of miles from his home. In his car, police found more than a thousand rounds of ammunition, two rifles, and homemade body armor. One of the deputies told A.C. that when they found all the weapons, they believed they had stopped a mass shooting. Brandon Russell was sentenced to five years in prison on explosives charges. Despite all this, Adam Waffen still grew. After Seville happened, right, that's when we started having an influx of people. When far-right groups gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, during the summer of 2017, they hoped it would be a powerful display of white supremacist unity. Instead, the violence and tragedy of the events drove even deeper wedges between the groups that were there. Groups like Identity Europa, which masked their agenda of intolerance and exclusion with a facade of educated, clean-cut respectability, faded away. But Adam Waffen benefited. Because we were against Charlottesville, completely. I mean, we were against rallies, against showing your face in public, that sort of thing. And after Charlottesville ended horribly, basically guys were flocking to us because we were saying the whole time that, you know, rallies don't work, right? They do more harm than good in the end. And guys were starting to think that, hey, these Adam Waffen guys, they have it together. What they're saying is true. And so a whole chapter in American Vanguard basically left and joined us, the leader and all the members. So were you kind of instrumental in recruiting those new people yeah. um, after Charlottesville? Yeah, I was basically the main guy in charge of that, conducting the interrogations and the interviews. So how many guys do you think you ended up recruiting? Mm, probably 20 to 30 guys. And there were guys that thought that we were growing way too fast. And then there were guys that actually thought that we needed to grow. So... There was some tension there. Many of Adam Waffen's members came from middle-class and even wealthy families. Nobody knows how large the group got, but estimates range from below 40 to around 80 members. Brennan says he and other Adam Waffen members never really considered themselves part of the alt-right. He says alt-right groups idealized Western civilization. But Adam Waffen thought Western civilization had failed. As the beginning of the end commences, the Adamwaffen division will find no rest. Everything about Adamwaffen was designed to create fear and dread. The group uploaded highly produced propaganda videos to YouTube, with footage of Adamwaffen members in tactical gear, shooting rifles, running through the woods, and burning the American flag. The group's emblem was a shield with a radiation warning symbol. Its black and white posters were plastered with swastikas and an invitation to, quote, join your local Nazis. For the enemy, our message is quite clear. There will be neither compromises nor half measures taken on our part to secure our race and a future for our children. Adam Waffen members also got together for so-called hate camps. Journalist A.C. Thompson. The hate camps were, depending on who you talk to, either 
get-togethers to train for the coming race war, or they were just chances to hang out and drink and talk shit. Uh, I think it was probably a mix of both. Brennan said it was shortly after he went to a hate camp that he knew he wanted to get out. One of the things he had been most enthusiastic about was a plan that Adam Waffen's founder had to buy a plot of land so the group could live off the grid together. But after the founder was arrested, Adam Waffen's new leaders dropped that idea. Brennan said it was starting to seem pointless. Also, Brennan says he was starting to acknowledge his discomfort with the person he'd become. On the group's secret chats, Brennan used homophobic slurs. And he said that Jews, quote, need to be wiped off the planet. Did you really believe that all Jews needed to be eliminated? No. Um, Have you ever, and everyone does this, have you ever said anything when you're in a group of people to, like, fit in, I guess? Is that what this is? Yeah, pretty much. It sounds extreme, I know. And like I said, it, it really made me cringe internally saying things like that and using racial slurs. It made me very uncomfortable. And Brennan's involvement with Adam Waffen was undermining all the good relationships in his life. My marriage was on the rocks. My parents knew what I was involved with, and they absolutely hated it. All of Brennan's reasons for leaving line up with what research shows about why extremists leave hate groups. It's not that they have a bombshell realization that they were doing something bad. Instead, it's often that they're disillusioned by the inaction or the backstabbing in the group. Some leave because they're uneasy about the ideology, and some leave because family pulls them away. The reason why it was hard for me to get out was for my safety and my family's safety. That was my main concern, right? How I was going to get out was going to be the problem. Brennan removed himself from the group's online server called Discord, and then he left the country to serve a rotation with his army unit in Kuwait. It was during his time there that Adam Waffen was linked to further atrocities. At the end of 2017, one of its members murdered his girlfriend's parents, who reportedly disapproved of the daughter's relationship with a Nazi. And then in early 2018, there was another murder. In Orange County, California, police found the body of a 19-year-old college student named Blaze Bernstein. He'd been stabbed 20 times and left in a shallow grave. Blaze Bernstein was Jewish and gay. Days later, police arrested an Adam Waffen member named Sam Woodward. Woodward is currently charged with murder and a hate crime. Brennan found out about it while he was still deployed. After Sam killed Blaze, I felt so guilty about that. I knew Sam, right? I met him a few times. I had conversations with him. And I knew a guy that ended up killing someone. And I felt really genuinely horrible about that. And after that, that's when I was like, yep, perfect. Now I'm going to make up a story and get the heck out of Adam Waffen. Brennan told one of Adam Waffen's leaders that he had to leave the group. I basically made up a story saying that I was being questioned by Army CID, which is criminal investigation, about my involvement with Adam Waffen and the whole Sam Woodward thing. I didn't want to put any of the other guys in danger. I invented the whole thing to make it not look suspicious. So that was my out of the group. 
Brendan hoped this would clear the decks for him when he returned to the States in the fall of 2018 and that he could start fresh. But a few weeks after he got back, he was doxxed. Antifa published his full name, his wife's name, his phone number, and their address. Even so, Brennan was lucky to get out when he did. It was in this subdivision near Houston, Texas, where the FBI carried out further arrests on Wednesday as part of that roundup of four Adam Waffen members charged with conspiracy to mail threatening communications. It was shortly after Brennan's docks that some Adam Waffen ramped up their activities. Some allegedly began sending threatening messages to journalists of color and Jewish activists. And they began swatting targets, including A.C. Thompson. But federal authorities were keeping a close eye. The FBI managed to infiltrate this neo-Nazi group online. Yeah, and they managed to monitor some of these members for years. Court documents explain how the suspects... The FBI surveillance and the arrests had an effect. In March of 2020... Adam Waffen made an announcement that it would disband. But there was also another reason. There was talk that Adam Waffen might become the first violent white supremacist group ever to be designated by the U.S. government as a foreign terrorist organization. But Christian Picciolini doesn't believe Adam Waffen is finished. Listen here, the fact that they've announced that they've disbanded doesn't mean that they've disbanded. It just means that they're adopting new names or joining other groups. Indeed, new groups have popped up since the announcement, groups that appear to be reincarnations of Adam Waffen. The white supremacist movement is always changing. Groups come and groups go. People join the movement, then they leave. And unlike Brennan, most of those people may never be known. They'll just say they cut ties and continue on with their lives. They'll chalk up their involvement to youthful stupidity, or their wandering years, like it was just something they tried for a while, then dropped when it didn't suit them anymore. One of the things that I remember talking about with my colleagues as we were doing this reporting was the sort of performative nature of identity. A.C. Thompson said that when he was covering these groups for ProPublica, white extremists often downplayed what they did. It was, like, kind of remarkable to me that... It was like trying on a set of clothes or trying on a hat or trying on a new pair of jeans. Like, oh, this is who I'm going to try to be today. But white supremacy isn't something you just dabble in. This is a movement that, in just the last six years, stole a family's 19-year-old son in California, that killed an anti-racist counter-protester in Charlottesville, that gunned down 22 people outside a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, that murdered nine black churchgoers in Charleston, South Carolina, that took the lives of 11 worshipers at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And that's left A.C. Thompson constantly looking over his shoulder and asking whether his small family can ever live in the same place again for more than a year. In the end, a lot of these people hurt a lot of people pretty significantly. And yeah, it doesn't really matter if you were sort of playing at a character that you no longer want to pretend to be. What matters is the people that you hurt.
Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Okay. Um, I wanted to check in with you because of all of the stuff that hap- that's happened. Oh, I'm pretty energized. I'm pretty energetic about it all. Just trying to pay close attention to see what's happening. And um, it's becoming plainly obvious that this is a problem across the United States. There's definitely changes that need to happen with the police force. In early June, I reconnected with Brennan. It was less than two weeks after a black man in Minneapolis named George Floyd was killed while police were arresting him. Floyd's death ignited a wave of protests across the United States. Support for the Black Lives Matter movement swelled. It seemed finally like a large part of the country was awakening to the reality of racial injustice in America. And down in Louisiana, Brennan was among them. So I I originally went by myself. I'm like, you know what? I got to get off my butt. Like, there's no excuse. Just went out there holding a sign. What did your sign say? Uh, One side said abolish the police and the other side said I can't breathe. Brennan had not only renounced the views of the violent white supremacist group he once helped to grow, he went to rally with Black Lives Matter activists in New Orleans. I went three times, but overall it was just people that are tired of the affliction of black people and police brutality. So, Had you ever experienced or participated in anything quite like this before? No, I haven't. Not, not like a march like that. Um, nothing. It was my first time doing something like that. I just need to take a step back here to say that in the past year, I've been immersed in ideas and events that any healthy person would find shocking. But when you dive deep to understand a hate movement, things become less shocking over time. The thing that ended up knocking me off my chair was this conversation with Brennan. The last time we had spoken, he said he'd left the white supremacist movement, but he still used euphemisms like pro-white to describe the ideology. But now, Brennan was at a point where he explained to me institutional racism. I took an American history class uh, this semester. I learned a lot more about slavery and the effects of slavery than I ever knew. I was ignorant. I I just didn't know. And And I took on the typical conservative All Lives Matter view, right? I had that view before I took the class. And I started learning about the horrific things Black people had to endure for decades upon decades upon decades. And I understood that the system is functioning the way it intended to function. It's it's not broken, right? The, the, the system was intended for the uplifting and the success of European peoples. I mean, with the 13th Amendment and the prison system and mass incarceration, so they're still experiencing the effects of slavery, which proves that it is systemic racism and it is an issue. People are tired and I'm becoming tired for them and I see it and I didn't see it before. And uh, I'm just thankful. I'm just thankful I do see it now. One of the strangest things when you talk to extremists is that you see these dramatic swings. 
I spoke with another white supremacist who had once been an anti-racist skinhead. And you might remember that former Adam Waffen member who killed two roommates over a dispute about religion. He had converted to Islam to join ISIS. For these guys, it's not about the cause. It's about the fervor. But Brennan's thinking caught me by surprise in another way, too. His anger over Black oppression was coming from the same place as his earlier beliefs about white oppression, that it was a tyrannical state persecuting a people. And so the idea of arming up to go to protests made sense to him. I've got buddies that um, have gone to protests around the United States in full kit with body armor and rifles for the purpose of protecting protesters from the police. And these guys, what's cool is they stand at a distance from the peaceful protests. They're at a, a safe distance where they can observe the activity of both the protesters and the police and just keeping an eye out. And what's not good, though, is I've seen articles online grouping them into white supremacists. Whatever hope some may have had near the beginning of summer for a new consensus in America on racial justice has veered into much more polarized territory. As the Black Lives Matter movement initially surged in popularity, a backlash against it took root as well. And the polarization has reached a dangerous juncture. Militia groups and armed vigilantes, mostly from the far right, are now an expected and dangerous presence at protests. In Austin yesterday, a protester was shot dead by another member of the public. Someone got shot! In Kalamazoo, Michigan, a peaceful counter-protest turning violent as marchers clashed with the alt-right group The Proud Boys, an organization designated as... Guns at protests are becoming more common. We call ourselves the Boogaloo. We have breaking news now to tell you about. 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse of Illinois is charged with the deadly shooting of two protesters in Kenosha on Tuesday. The current state of conflict is also troubling because the influence of extreme groups like Adam Waffen has crept into the mainstream. In the last year, there were all these open Facebook groups talking quite openly about this sort of accelerationist ideology that was like, we want to bring chaos to the U.S. and bring it down. So it has become kind of more of a, like a, a culture and a movement versus a, you know, a group or anything like that. I think it really is... That is what's scary to me is people don't need to hide behind that clan hood or even, you know, wear that patch anymore. It's just about, I'm this kind of American now. These far-right militias aren't always explicitly white supremacist groups. But journalist A.C. Thompson says there's still a lot that unites them. It's like, oh, well, we have classes of people that we think are ruining America and that we should go to war with. In most cases the sort of prime targets are political. And so you're talking about anti-fascist groups, you're talking about leftists, you're talking about Democrats, you're talking about Black Lives Matter activists. 
They're anti-immigration. They're typically Islamophobic. Uh, they're typically very ultra-conservative Christian. They claim to be libertarians, but at the cost of exclusionary policies to anybody else. They're, you know, really against big cities. They're against liberals and progressive attitudes and things like that. So yeah, you have to ask yourself, even if they're not Nazis and they feel comfortable marching alongside them, what does that make them? And in this new broad spectrum of far-right agitators are plenty of potential recruits to the white supremacist movement. Christian says this is the moment that the movement has been waiting for. This is a perfect storm for extremism to thrive. And I say that because uncertainty is the number one driver for extremism. The uncertainty started with the coronavirus pandemic then the wave of unemployment that overtook the nation, and then the racial tensions that erupted in America's streets after George Floyd's killing. This is everything that they've been hoping for. Their whole ideology is based on a race war coming and that they will be the heroes of that race war. So not only have they been preparing for it, when they see the signs of it happening, they're doing everything they possibly can to further along, to amplify it, to pour gasoline on the fire. Christian says the movement is using this moment to sow chaos and spread mistrust of authorities. They're encouraging far-right conspiracy theories about a so-called deep state. They're promoting the anti-vax movement. All of these gained stunning traction among the general public. And recently, both the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security have acknowledged that white supremacists constitute the greatest lethal threat in the United States. In fact, this fall, local and federal authorities arrested 13 men in connection with a plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, Michigan's Democratic governor. Seven of them were part of a far-right militia group that sought to begin a civil war leading to societal collapse. This is not a turn that A.C. Thompson expected after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville seemingly sent the white supremacist movement underground. Have we reached a tipping point in the U.S.? I think the question that you really want to ask is I think you really want to ask, are we going to have a civil war? When people say tipping point, I think perhaps that's the question that's underneath there. I don't know. I don't know. I think there are massive, massive fissures in this country. And the armed conflict, the political violence, the stuff that feels like Weimar Germany, like this is like, it's real. It's real. You have to take note of it. You have to pay attention to it. You have to be concerned that perhaps these are signs that the center cannot hold and that the country is fracturing and splintering and collapsing. Yes, you, you should be concerned about that. Fracturing, splintering, and the person who should be uniting the nation isn't. What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacist and right like me to condemn? White proud supremacist and right proud boys. boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. It was as if like, the president of the United fucking States of America was speaking to like 20-year-old Nazi skinhead me. Christian Picciolini said when President Trump uttered those words during the first presidential debate of 2020, it felt like a PTSD moment. 
and I had this moment of like fear and disgust and dread because I knew exactly how every white supremacist in America felt at that moment hearing that thing. It wasn't about calling out the proud boys. It was him telling every white supremacist in America that he's got their back. And that was probably the scariest thing I've ever heard out loud ever in my life from like a a person of power. For A.C. Thompson, Trump's words were also disturbing because they echoed some troubling history. The Nazi party had this whole auxiliary of street toughs that did their security, that were their sort of little militia that became the SS. And I thought this is sort of one of the hallmarks of fascism is when you are relying on and working with these sort of extra state vigilantes and militias and paramilitary groups. And that's what this reminds me of. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump is Hitler, and I'm not saying that the Proud Boys are the SS, but I'm saying that it is a very common thing in fascist countries and authoritarian countries where the government or the political party works directly with militias, paramilitary, armed groups. And that is what this felt like to me. But here's what I think. Our journey to this precipice didn't start with Trump. It started years earlier, when racist Americans began stockpiling ammunition and growing hate group membership because they were scared that a black president would take their guns away. And we've seen this cycle before. Four decades ago, Ronald Reagan's victory was a conservative backlash to the gains that Black Americans had made then through the struggle for civil rights. And young neo-Nazi skinheads who fancied themselves rebels against authority played right into that racist agenda. If you look back even further to the period immediately following the Civil War, it seemed African Americans might finally know equality. But instead, Reconstruction was cut short and Southern states ushered in a long era of Jim Crow laws. I would argue we are standing at that same precipice again right now, when more Americans are calling for changes to a system that brutalizes Black people in the name of law enforcement. And the conflicts playing out at protests may just be the beginning. With the run-up to the election, the aftermath of the election, the sort of longer-term scene after the election, there are a lot of perils and a lot of dangerous scenarios that could come to pass where you see acts of mass violence and you see acts of real political warfare in the streets. And to be clear, like a lot of these people have been girding for a civil war for years. That's why they have guns. We may have to fight the state. In the Trump era, they have been preparing for this civil war the whole time. It seems that every time Black people make gains, America convulses and then retreats. And I think now 
in 2020, when we are finally hearing the cries of the oppressed and, and seeing the injustice that has happened, we're seeing you know, an equal, if not greater, backlash from scared whites in response to that. The question is, this time, will we see it through? We just can't give white supremacy a pass anymore. We can't sweep it under the rug anymore. And we can't not call it for what it is anymore. We've reached a point where if we refuse to call it what it is and to be vigilant against it, it will overcome us. We've got one more episode. There's a loose end we haven't tied up. Where is Clark Martell now? It's a question that's not at Christian for 20 years. Where is Clark Martell, the man that recruited him? He was the start of the white power youth movement. If it wasn't for him, you would not see it, those people marching in Charlottesville. The street youth movement that you see with Proud Boys, that you see with the alt-right, that you see with all of these groups, that was Clark. That was Clark. This would be his moment. Where is he? The last correspondence we ever got from Clark was a postcard, and he said he was going to Texas to become an astronaut. There is stuff to tell you about Clark. So I'm going to try to walk through this in some sort of organized manner, but I spoke a couple of weeks ago with Clark's sister. What the fuck? This is some deep shit. I was not aware of this. Next time on Motive, Finding Clark. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find these things. It helps other people find the show. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Story consultant, Christian Picciolini. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault makes the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes. Special thanks to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible. <laughs> 